Rob Cartledge of robcartledgeministries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just uh, come before you uh, and ask that you would help me today to deliver this sermon. Lord, it's a very controversial uh, subject and um, one that has um, many Christians in the world very confused uh, and even deceived. And so, Lord, as I approach it, Lord, I ask that you would help me to approach it carefully and accurately. Uh, From a doctrinal standpoint, may I be uh, um, found... uh, right in your eyes. Help me to deliver the proper words. And uh, may all the content that we have here be uh, true. And uh, and I pray that that it, that it is. And that uh, this sermon can not only affect us and help us to clear up any misconceptions we may have with this topic, but also that it would uh, help many uh, in the world, uh, many Christians, to have this cleared up in, for them as well. So we pray this in your wonderful name. Guide this sermon now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, this is a another sermon in the Christology series. This is the ninth sermon in the Christology series. So we've done a few and there's still a, a few more to go. I thought it was going to be finished by the sixth or seventh one, but not so. This one's on the rapture of the church. So let's get straight into it. Why does this doctrine of the rapture matter? Why does the doctrine of the ma- uh, rapture matter? to Christians. Why am I bothering preaching on it? I've got some really clear reasons. What we believe about the timing of the rapture and the details related to it determines much in the way of how we live out our Christian life on earth and the way that we view our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What we think about the rapture is going to determine how we see Jesus. Because if Jesus is going to rapture us before a tribulation, then we're going to see him differently than if he's a God that allows us to go through a tribulation, isn't it? It's going to change our perception of Christ in many many ways. What view we hold in relation to when the church is raptured will determine how we stand up under tribulations, which we have to endure currently. Because there's many Christians in the world, like in China and Christians from Russia and, and various places around the world, that are going through great tribulations right now. And they have not been raptured from them. And if they believed that they were going to be raptured from them, they probably wouldn't be Christian any longer either. Because the Bible tells us in Acts 14.22 that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. So the Bible forewarns us that it's not talking about the great tribulation there, but it's talking about tribulation all the same. Through much tribulation, we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Chinese Christians... Like Brother Yun, the book I'm just reading for a second time, The Heavenly Man, he went through much tribulation, and so did the Chinese church. In establishing Christ as Lord and Saviour in China, many believers died for that, to see Jesus glorified in that country. They went through great tribulations. Now, there's four main rapture positions. In the church, doctrines upon the timing of the rapture of the church falls into four main camps. One is the pre-tribulation camp, and that is where Christ will rapture the church prior to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Mid-tribulation is the church will be raptured prior to the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and some also believe just prior to the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out which uh, John and I did a bit of research into that and looked into that, and uh, I won't talk about it right now, but it's an interesting view, and I can see how they could hold that view, but it's, there's a distinct reason why it wouldn't happen then as well, which I'll get into another time. could be dead smack bang in the middle of the seven-year period, or it could be somewhere near the end of that period, but it's during the tribulation, but not after it. The post-tribulation is the church will be raptured immediately after the tribulation upon the sounding of the seventh trumpet, or just after the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And there's also the preterist view, where the tribulation happened 
already in AD 70 when Jerusalem fell to Rome. So that's a view which is also held because preterism is taking a strong foothold in the church at the moment. So regarding our study today, I'll be focusing upon the pre-trib and the post-trib positions. I'm not going to be worrying about the other positions as yet because as we study those two positions, the other ones become apparent anyway. As far as the mid-tribulation position, it will become apparent as we study Scripture of its validity. And in relation to the preterist view of the tribulation, to me that is clearly deceptive, a deceptive view that some Christians have adopted, but it's just ridiculous if you really think about it. You know, uh, the book of Revelation was written after AD 70, yet they say that, that it was referring to something that's already happened. And how could it be a prophecy if it's referring to something that's already happened? So if you want to listen to an exhaustive study on the subject of preterism, listen to the sermon by Joe Schimmel called Kingdom When, preached on 7th of May 2012. If you go to blessedhopechapel.org and subscribe to his podcast, you'll receive them all, and have a listen to that, that sermon. Again, it's called Kingdom When. He just completely shreds the, the, that whole viewpoint so clearly that anyone who's a preterist and is willing to listen to that sermon will, couldn't be a preterist after it because it's just ridiculous, it's so unscriptural, it's not funny. Anyway, let's have a look at the origins of the pre-tribulation view. And this is what you've got to... Whenever you get a doctrine that hasn't been around for 2,000 years, you've got to go and find out where it originated. Uh, the view of pre-tribulation is a recent phenomenon. It hasn't been around since the beginning of the church. Even Chuck Missler, in a video where he's really rubbishing the post-tribulation view, he said the classical view is post-tribulation. So he admits the classical view, the original view of the early church and all the fathers of the early church, the classical view was post-trib. However, that changed during the 19th century, during the 1800s. Anyway, we'll take a look at that. The 1800s gave rise to some of the most established cults. I just want to point out something that happened during the 1800s was there was this influx of cults that are still around today. It gave rise to the Mormons. They were formed in 1820 by Joseph Smith. Also in the early 1840s, the Seventh-day Adventists were formed by William Miller. Now, Seventh-day Adventists fall into the cult for a simple reason that, well, firstly, they prophesied of the coming or the second coming of Jesus and they gave a date. Didn't happen. They prophesied again. Didn't happen. So they said he came spiritually, sort of like the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, and then after them, they established a few doctrines like that if you don't worship on a Saturday, you're the harlot church. Therefore, the rest of the church of, in the world is a harlot church and only the Seventh-day Adventists have it right. And therefore, they have given themselves cult recognition because of that. But there are some Seventh-day Adventists that are walking away from that, but still staying under the banner of Seventh-day Adventism, which makes me wonder why. But anyway, in 1848, the Christadelphians were formed by John Thomas, which is also another cult because they deny Jesus' deity. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists do not deny Jesus' deity, so we've got to make that clear. That's where they aren't falling into the standard cult views. In 1866, Mary Baker Eddy formed Christian Science. In 1878, Jehovah Witnesses were formed by Charles Taze Russell. <laughs> so some of the biggest cults today were formed in the 1800s. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mentioned this period as there was an incredible rise in deceptive teaching during the 19th century, an incredible rise. Now, if we take a look at a parish called the Parish of Rosneath, in the year of 1826, the Parish of Rosneath reported as having received an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They reported speaking in tongues with the interpretation of tongues as well as miraculous healings. And many renowned men of God visited the parish during this time. Some came away convinced it was of God. Others came away believing it was of the devil. John Darby came away believing it was of the devil. John Darby, I mention his name because he's, he's a critical figure in pre-trib rapture theory. However, when he went to those manifestations, he believed it was of the devil. However, they both came to the same conclusions from those. Uh, John Darby came to the same conclusion as this uh, parish. Margaret MacDonald, this is the lady that first came forth with this pre-tribulation view. It's interesting though in relation to that view uh, that she came forth with. Um, during this time a 16-year-old Margaret MacDonald of the parish of Rosneath claimed to have received a heavenly vision of 
end times, of the end times. Many scholars of the past were influenced by these visions and interpreted them to speak of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. However, John Bray, in his book, The Origins of the Pre-Tribulation Rapture Teaching, wrote that when MacDonald's utterances are read closely, her statements show her to hold a, pro- a post-tribulationist position. And he quotes a couple of things that she said in the, in the vision, like being the fiery trial which is to try us, meaning a trial that we are to be tried in, and also for the purging and purifying of the real members of the body of Jesus. So it's interesting that even though her vision was reported as being the thing that first introduced pre-tribulation rapture to the world, they believe on a closer reading that even she wasn't mentioning that. It's been interpreted as that. So that's interesting. Do you want to? Yeah. Uh, Rob, just before you go on, can you, just for the benefit of everyone, can you just quickly explain uh, the meaning of or definition of tribulation and definition of rapture? Just, just in a... Okay. Oh, firstly, what a tribulation is, is if you go through something terrible, like um, you go through this great persecution where the government rises up against the Christians and starts throwing them into prison and killing them and, and all that sort of stuff. They call that a tribulation. Uh, they say that, sorry, a trial, yeah, a trial, tribulation. And uh, the last great tribulation is talked about in the book of Revelation where there's God actually gets in on the act and starts blowing trumpets and causing there to be massive destruction on the earth. So a tribulation that happens upon the whole earth. Now, some believe that the church, the current church, will be lifted off in a rapture, taken. Jesus is going to come, lift them off up into the clouds and take them to heaven before anything bad happens on earth in the, in the way of a earthly tribulation. But others believe that that's not going to be the case. And therefore, we've got to look at Scripture to find out what God has to say about it. Because if the church is meant to be here during the tribulation, yet you hold a view that you're not going to be here, and then are forced to go through it, there's a good chance you will turn away from Jesus. And so that's why I'm interested in looking at this subject a bit more clearly because if, if you're holding to a pre-trib view and it doesn't come to pass, you might be one of those that Jesus says will fall away mm-hmm. during the end times. And we don't want to fall away from Jesus, do we? Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what, even if you're pressed to the wall and have to give up your life, it would be better to give up your life than reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Seriously. If you give up your life and don't reject Jesus, then at that moment you go to be with him and you're in a better place. Do you know what I mean? So it's better to go through that than to reject him, get away uh, and go and live for a few more years and then get killed or whatever anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, we'll keep on going. John Nelson Darby, 1800 to 1882. That was also through that same period of time where all these rise of cults came to be. Uh, A Plymouth Brethren minister, um, John Darby, is considered the father of dispensationalism and the pre-tribulation rapture teaching. It is believed that John Darby wrote his pre-tribulation rapture views in 1827, three years before Margaret MacDonald's vision in 1830. They believe he came up with it before her. Prior to Darby's teaching on a pre-tribulation rapture of the church in the 1830s, there has never been any mention of a pre-tribulation rapture in the church's history, nor a teaching of a secret rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. See, a lot of these pre-tribulation rapture believers will say, oh, there's a secret rapture that's going to occur. So that means Jesus is going to come a second time and then another second time. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? He's going to come one time just to collect the church and then he's going to come again. However, you don't find it in Scripture, but they just make that statement. And most people who don't read their Bibles go, oh, yeah, I accept that. Sounds good. We'll accept that. And some really renowned theologians in in the world today believe it, and they accept it as truth. I have never seen it in Scripture, therefore I've never been able to accept it. If someone could show it to me in Scripture, show me that there's a secret rapture, and outside of the words of John Darby, but show me a true scripture where it says it, then I'll believe it. But because I don't see it, it's hard to believe. And there's something to be said about dispensationalism as well. To hold a pre-trib view, you must believe that the church is Gentile and will be raptured before the Great Tribulation, that the church is a Gentile phenomenon, not a Jewish phenomenon, and that they'll be raptured before the Great Tribulation and that God will leave the Jews to go through the Tribulation in an effort to win the lost to Christ during that time. 
So pre-tribulation rapture, the, the real advocates of it believe that the Jews will be here, the Jews will do the saving during the tribulation, but the Gentiles will be gone. And that's because of this, this thing that John Darby came up with, which is dispensationalism. This position is held by those who are called dispensationalists. Dispensationalism, now this might be a bit theological for some of you, but just try to bear with me with it. Michael Vlack of theologicalstudies.org explains that the beginning of systematised dispensationalism is usually linked with John Nelson Darby. Darby came to believe in a future salvation and restoration of national Israel. Based on his study of Isaiah 32, Darby concluded that Israel in a future dispensation would enjoy earthly blessings that were different from the heavenly blessings experienced by the church. He thus saw a clear distinction between Israel and the church. He clearly saw Israel and the church as two separate phenomenons. And Darby also came to believe in an any-moment rapture of the church that was followed by Daniel's 70th week in which Israel would once again take centre stage in God's plan. They've made this any-moment or imminency, a doctrine of imminency, also is another thing that they teach, which if God can take you at any moment, then there's a good chance he'll take us now and then the Jews will be left here to do all the dirty work during the tribulation. Now, the doctrine of imminency, I'm going to actually go into that a little bit, and I have spoken about it in another Christology, is not as clear as what they're proclaiming at the moment. Anyway, Darby saw seven dispensations. The, there was, the first one was the paradisaical state of the flood, which was pre-flood, which was like the state of paradise. Uh, then there was the dispensation of Noah, Abraham, Israel, Gentiles, the spirit, and then the millennium. And the spirit is talking about since the day of Pentecost. And then there was the millennium, which is the thousand years of God's reign or Jesus' reign on earth. By his own testimony, Darby says his dispensational theology was fully formed in 1833, which is three years after Margaret MacDonald's visions. Now, whether her visions had influence on what he believes here, we're not sure, but some say they do, others say they don't. Anyway, it seems that to develop a theology where a pre-tribulation position can be held, you must adopt an unbiblical theology and claim that the church in Israel are not the same, that they have different origins, that they have different missions and different destinies. You have to claim that the church in Israel are not the same, that Israel is going to go through the tribulation because the church is going to be gone. I believe this position is just as unbiblical as replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel in God's plan is to make the claim that the church and Israel are not the same conflicts with scripture in Romans 11 17 to 24 it speaks about wild olive branches and the wild olive branches are considered Gentiles uh, and those wild olive branches are being grafted into cultivated olive tree a cultivated olive tree which is is Israel with Christ as the root and in essence, Jews and Gentiles being one body of the same olive tree. Have, who's read that about the olive tree? Yes. Yeah? Jews grafted into a cultivated olive tree. So they're becoming one in the one tree. So, and the tree is Jewish, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So the church is Israel. Mm-hmm. If you want to call Israel God's people, then now the church is God's people. Now the church doesn't replace Israel. The church is Israel. It's just a new covenant way of looking at God's people. The people of God prior to the coming of Christ was the Jews. Since Christ, he's broadened his arms out to say, anyone who believes in me is now the church, including you Jews that have to believe in me also. And if you all believe in me, you are called my body, the body of Christ. You are now the church. And therefore, if we want to call the people of God Jews or Israel, we are Jews. We are Israel. We are the church. We're all one because we're grafted in. Exactly. So then it says in Romans 11.25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So what does until the full number of Gentiles come in mean? To all are saved. Yeah. And so the Gentiles are coming into Israel. They're hardened until the Gentiles have come into Israel. So we have to become one with Israel. 
We are not separate. The church is Israel. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. Meaning, he's talking to the Ephesians, which are Gentile, right? He says, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, as you were prior to the coming of Christ. You were foreigners and aliens. Now you're fellow citizens with God's people, which is Israel. And if you're a fellow citizen in Israel, you are now an Israelite. And you're members of God's household. And you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets. And the prophets were the Old Testament, weren't they? They're talking about the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those prophets. You're built on the foundation. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too, the Gentile Ephesians are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And also in Ephesians 3.6 it said this mystery, and this is the mystery that Paul's talking about, is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They're not separate. They're heirs together. They're members together of one body. And what's the body called? The body of Christ. And they're shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm harking on this a little bit, guys, because I want, I want Christians around the world to hear this message and to get it, to finally get it, because this, is, this has been a real distraction to the church for, for about 100 years now or more. So we are considered adopted into the family of God which is Israel. Ephesians 1, 4-5, he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. If we're adopted as a son of Christ, then are we God's people? Absolutely. And if Jews are considered God's people, and now we're considered God's people, are we the same? Absolutely. Did Jesus just die for the Jews or did he die for all of us? So his blood covers everyone. It's not covers the Gentiles different to the way he covers the Jews. He covers us all. We're all one. Even in the Old Testament, during the Old Testament days, the Gentile Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, by faith protected the Israeli spies and therefore was included into the nation of Israel. She was considered Jewish and was included into the family line of Christ himself. He actually appears in the family line of Christ, the Messiah. And she was a Gentile. And what about Ruth? In the book of Ruth, she was a Moabitess. She married Boaz. She became an Israelite. And she also is in the family line of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Consider this. The church is a Jewish idea and of Jewish origin and was founded by Christ himself. And he calls the church his body, isn't it? It's a Jewish idea. It's not a Gentile idea like like these theologians are making out. The church consists of both Jews and Gentiles, with Gentiles being adopted into the Jewish family. All the apostles who formed the church or began the church were Jewish, and they preached to both Jews and Gentiles to convert them into the church of Christ. Jews were converted, who converted were still Jewish, but were in the church. Greeks who converted were still Greek, but they were in the church. Therefore, they were Greek in the church, and if the church is Israel, they were Greek Jews. There were, you know what I mean? I'm an English Jew, born in Australia, so I'm an Aussie Jew. You know what I mean? That might get me killed one day, that statement. <laughs> but anyway, because of anti-Semitism in the world today, you know, that's, it's terrible what they're doing, what, what the sort of hatred that can breed. <clears throat> the church is Christ's body, and it consists of Jews and Gentiles. Amen. Is everyone sort of convinced on this front? If we claim that the church and Israel are separate, our theology is flawed and corrupted because the church is Israel, and the church is Greek, and the church is every nation who accepts Jesus as Lord and Saviour. So in the Old Testament, the Jews worshipped in or towards the temple. Is that right? In the New Testament, the Jews and Gentiles worship as the church or as the temple. They are the temple, the body of Christ. In the Old Testament, God's people were the Jews and anyone who would become a Jew. 
In the New Testament, God's people are anyone who would believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So when we realise that the Jews and Gentiles are one and are all part of the body of Christ and are not distinct from them, then anti-Semitism in the church will cease. You know, there is a lot of anti-Semitism in the church. Christians who hate Jews. And in a sense, it, according to this, that means they hate themselves. So also we will not be able to hold the theology that the church is a Gentile phenomenon, which you've got to hold if you're going to believe in a pre-trib rapture and distinct from the Jews. So Chuck Missler said, the church in Israel are not the same, that they have different origins, different missions and different destinies. Yeah, the Jews who do not follow Christ have a different destiny than the church, and that destiny is called hell. If you have a different destiny than the church, that destiny is hell. There's no other destiny for those that don't, who don't follow Christ and who aren't part of the church. Just as Greeks who do not follow Christ have a different destiny and, than the church, and that different destiny is hell. Okay, so... Back to the pre-tribulation rapture. Prior to 1833, dispensationalism was unheard of and a pre-tribulation rapture was never considered either. As Joe Schimmel pointed out in his sermon, Behold, He Comes with Clouds, preached on the 25th of the 6th, uh, 2012, that there has never been a council that has convened to discuss the rapture position prior to 1830. There was never a council out of all the councils that were convened from Christ through to 1830, they've never considered the pre-tribulation rapture theory. The classical stance, even even uh, Chuck Missler said this, the classical stance is that we will go through the tribulation. It's always been that way. Before 1830, the assumed position of the church has been post-trib and that the church would go through the tribulation. So I encourage everyone to listen to Joe Schimmel's sermon, Behold, He Comes with Clouds, to get a fuller insight into the subject, as I believe that this pre-tribulation rapture position will be responsible for the greatest falling away from Christianity in history. This is the point I'm getting to. I believe that there's some scriptures talked about in Matthew 24, 9 to 10 when uh, there'll be a massive falling away. And it even says in 2 Thessalonians, I think, chapter 2, that the the rapture or Christ will not come until there has been a falling away. And the falling away they're talking about is thousands or millions of people turning away from Jesus before he comes. And I think that's why he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will there be anyone left that hasn't rejected me? There must be a falling away before the coming of Christ. What's going to cause the falling away? That's what we've got to ask. What's going to cause millions and millions of Christians to turn away from Jesus? And I believe we're looking at it right now. The pre-tribulation rapture theory. An author known as BT. That's all he, he just put his initials. He didn't put his name. I don't know what. He expressed this view. He said, I've been putting a lot of thought into the pre-tribulation rapture scenario. I was in that crowd for years, misled like millions of others, after the truth became apparent that there would not be a pre-trib rapture. I was thinking that I'm glad I know the truth, but it really doesn't hurt anything to believe otherwise. But I know now that this isn't true. What I expect will happen is that the tribulation will start in a big way and the man of sin will be revealed. The man of sin. Who's the man of sin? The Antichrist will be revealed and this will have a tremendous impact on millions of Christians that we're expecting to be gone. Because, you know, they're teaching that, that they'll be gone before the man of sin is revealed. Contrary to scripture, they teach we won't be here when the Antichrist is revealed on earth. Even though there's a clear scripture which says otherwise. And I might, may as well read it. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, says this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. In other translations, I think the King James says, the falling away. Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed for destruction. So it clearly says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Until the Antichrist is revealed, Jesus won't come. 
So they're teaching, the pre-tribulation rapture teachers teach that you will be gone before the Antichrist is revealed in direct opposition to that scripture. So they are the deceivers that they said don't let anyone deceive you by, aren't they? Anyway, this will have a tremendous impact upon millions of Christians that were expecting to be gone. At this point, they will feel betrayed by God. The people who believe they should be gone, they will feel betrayed and they'll feel that everything was a lie and that they'd been tricked with false hopes. And if the pre-tribulation rapture wasn't true, the whole Bible probably wasn't true, they will turn their backs on God. Millions will take the mark of the beast. They'll probably be the most diligent group to round up the remaining Christians. And you know what? That scenario fits scripture, and I'll show you why. If, if you want to, you can, if you can get there quick enough. Matthew 24 says this. Let me read it to you. Says, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Many will turn away from the faith at that time of the end, right in during the tribulation. Many will turn away from the faith. They will betray and hate each other. They'll betray. He just said they'll be the most diligent group to round up the remaining Christians to be killed. Because they'll betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So there'll be many false prophets during this time that will appear and deceive us if we only if we could be deceived. And then it says this, because of the increase of wickedness, because the end times there'll be so much wickedness in the world, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. People's love will grow cold. And they will easily betray another person because they won't care any longer. They, they won't even, they'll see someone killed and it won't even disturb them. They'll be desensitised to that point. And I believe the pre-trib rapture is one of the teachings that is going to do this and this is why I'm standing in direct opposition to it because I think it is a diabolical teaching and so conflicting with Scripture, and all the theologies they base to make it true are, are lies, and they're not based on Scripture. Now, just in relation to imminency, and this is where they think you're gonna, there's going to be a coming of Christ to pick up the church, and then seven years later, or ten years later, or however long, there'll be another coming of Christ. So really, that we're looking forward to the third coming, if they're true. It doesn't fit Scripture. Matthew put it clearly once. He's coming. He's only going to come once <laughs> when he comes. They say he's coming to pick the bride up. They're going to go back. They're going to have this big feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and then they're going to come back again. It doesn't say that. It says he's going to come and he's going to collect everyone from the heavens, all those that have believed. He's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to lift up those that are still alive in the Lord, will be raptured up together with him, and they'll all be together forever in, with the Lord from that moment forward. It does not say they're going to come take the church, come back later, pick up the rest. That turn to Jesus later. Pre-tribulationists teach that Christ will come at any time and that the church will not be here when the Antichrist is revealed. That's what they teach. However, 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one deceive you by any means that they will not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Jesus Christ will not return until the Antichrist is revealed. And this is a position you will hear many pre-tribulationists teach contrary doctrine. And there must also be a great falling away. We also will hear of millions of Christians turning away from the faith. And that day is coming. We, even now you hear of this great falling away in the West. So many people are turning from Jesus now. But this is going to be an epidemic. This is going to be a terrible thing where the true believers will be easy to spot because there won't be many of them. So anyone who says, I'm a Christian, oh, he must be one. Because he wouldn't say that mm. if he wasn't one. Because if he, if he, it would be a death penalty to say it. Do you know what I mean? Like in China, if you go over there, especially back when Brother Yun was around, to put your hand up and say, I'm a Christian, you would have to be a true Christian. Because mm. it was a death penalty or a pr imprisonment, if you claim that, back then. Um, just remember, I spoke on imminency in an earlier Christology sermon. I can't remember which one. But the imminent return of Christ is impossible for the very reason that he cannot come until the Antichrist is revealed, according to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, the question is, if Jesus comes after the Antichrist is revealed and after the great falling away, what do you think would be the catalyst of this great falling away? 
obviously a persecution brought on by Antichrist himself during the tribulation which he unleashes on earth. When the, if the Antichrist is revealed before the return of Christ, then he's going to come. And the moment he's revealed, he's going to start unleashing his wrath, the wrath of Antichrist, and then there'll be a great falling away because most people should have been gone in their minds. So they'll turn away from Jesus. And after a, 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 a couple of things that have to also take place, because the Bible also speaks of other things that must occur as well, then he's going to come. And it's those of us who hold on to the end will be saved. The secret rapture. Because scripture reveals that the timing of the second coming is immediately after these terrible days of tribulation, pre-tribulationists then created the theory of a secret rapture occurring before the second coming. In that sense, a second coming before the second coming. The only problem with that theory is there is no mention of a secret rapture in scripture. Only the one rapture is coming. There is no secret rapture. It doesn't exist in scripture. And it's sort of when you, when you know the Bible, you know, it, it, it sort of infuriates you when you hear of this stuff. You sort of read it and go, how can this guy say that? He's got nothing to back up this secret rapture. Joe Schimmel has a $10,000 reward for anyone who can reveal just one scripture which speaks of a pre-tribulation rapture. So far, no one has been able to collect the reward because there is none. I've read the Bible I don't know how many times. I've read it through, I've read it through, I read it through regularly. And I've never seen a scripture that relates to it. And you know what, I even keep my mind focusing on that a lot of the time because I've got a little note, a section in my one of my books where I write down every scripture that refers to a, a rapture. They're all post. That's why they had to, they had to for pre-tribs to actually hold to that view, they had to come up with a secret rapture. Because every scripture that relates to a rapture refers to an after-tribulation one. So to substantiate their view, they had to come up with a secret rapture. It's not called secret, it's called a lie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And Jesus, every reference to a rapture is trumpets being blown, loud commands of angels, and they're coming down, and the lightning flying from east to the west, as so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be a noisy event. It's not going to be a secret one where no one knows. And, oh, where, where did he go? <laughs> yeah. I tell you, nothing in Christianity is secret. Nothing in Christianity is secret. The only one who does things in secret is the Illuminati and the Freemasons and all those associated with the Illuminati. They do everything in secret. But Christ and the church, it's public. It's out in the open. They know what we believe. The Bible is open for anyone who wants to read it. It's all there. It's not secret. I hate that term secret. The secret. It's even a book called The Secret. Yeah. I've done a sermon on that in the Uncovering Religion. Okay, Mark 13. Turn in your Bibles, guys. We're just going to close with some... I, this was, I knew it was going to be a bit of a longer sermon, but it's important that we go through this because your life one day might... <coughs> depend on this knowledge Mark 13 now we're reading from the NIV it reads the same, says the same things in the King James and in the ESV and in the Amplified and just a bit more in the Amplified <laughs> but um, it says the same thing in all of those I just want you to know I'm only pulling up a few of the scriptures because we'd be here for the rest of the day if I pulled them all up um, we're just going to pull up a few that I've I think are important for us to understand. Now, this, this scripture I'm about to read through, this passage of scripture, it is the most clearest reference as to the timing of the second coming and the rapture of Christ. There is no other mention, or there are a few, but it's, this one is the closest or most clearest as to the actual rapture of the church, okay, and believers in, in Christ. So let's have a look at this from 1312. It says, brother will betray brother to death. This is Jesus speaking. So we've got a fair bit of authority in what he's saying here. And a father will betray his child to death. So the love of most will grow cold, as we were reading Matthew 24 before. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. So if a child has a parent that's a Christian, he'll rebel against them and get them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. So the whole world's going to hate the Christians. The whole world is going to hate us. He's telling us, he's forewarning us. Now, they'll try to tell you, oh, this is referring to the Jews. 
This is referring to the Jews. We're gone at this time. The church is gone because the church and the Jews are separate. Therefore, we're gone and only the Jews are left. How's that work out? It doesn't say that in Scripture. They just say that as a theological statement to back up their view. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, they're talking about Satan standing in the most holy place in the, in the temple of Jerusalem, let the reader understand that let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one on the, in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. So there's going to be days of distress unequaled from the beginning of the world till now. We're heading into the most terrible days we're ever going to witness. And never will they be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. And if you read the book of Revelation, there's not many that actually survive the tribulation. But for the sake of the elect... Who the elect? Those that believe in Jesus and are the ones that are holding fast to him. Whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. He has shortened those days. At that time. Now, that's key word there. Key words. At that time. When? After the most, the most terrible days, unequaled from the beginning of the earth until then. At that time. After the tribulation. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles and deceive the elect, if that were possible. And I like that, because could you deceive the elect? And when I think of the elect, I think of guys like Joe Schimmel, and I'm thinking, wow, they're going to have, to have to have a real big deception to deceive Joe Schimmel. You know what I mean? If it was possible. You know, we can be deceived in part, and then we can come to our senses and reject what we got deceived in. But, you know, to deceive the elect is going to be a powerful, must be a powerful decision, uh, deception. But I don't believe the elect will be deceived. So be on your guard. So it tells us, beware. Be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following, did you get that? There's some more key words. Following that distress... Here it comes. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This sounds like Joel 2.28. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. At that time, all men will see him coming in the clouds. And I think I mentioned in a sermon that everything will be exposed at that time. If there's a roof over your eyes so you can't see Jesus, you'll see through the roof. Every eye will see him. Every eye. That means no one, even those in the deepest dungeon, will be able to see the Lord coming. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He created matter. He can take matter away. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. There's the rapture. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. At that time, he'll send his angels to gather the elect. How are we going to be raptured? By angels. We're not just going to get our own wings and fly off or anything like that or just lift it up. The angels will gather us up from one end of the earth, to, uh, from, uh, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That means all those that have died and gone to heaven will be brought together and all those that are alive at his coming will be brought up by the angels. They will be gathered together. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near and right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or our, not even the angels in heaven, or, nor the Son, but only the Father. So he's saying even Jesus himself doesn't know what time that's going to happen because the Father's waiting for a certain moment. So it says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. 
So we've got to be on guard, be alert. We've got to study the scriptures to find out what must take place. When we see certain things take place, we've got to know, hey, the fig, the, the fig tree the, is tender, the leaves are starting to sprout. Mm. Hey, the nations of the earth are gathering around Jerusalem. There's a sign. It's not that we don't, we don't know the, the day or the hour, but we know the season because the season is given us clearly in scripture. We can know the time as in the time of the end that we are in those days, but the actual moment we don't know. Not even Jesus knows that. And it's crazy to go speculating on that, but we can say, yes, we are in the season, definitely. So it is like a man going away. He leaves his house in charge of his servants and each his assigned task and tell the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Why does he say watch? He says watch the days, watch the times, watch the news, watch the events, watch prophecy in the Bible because the Bible will give us clear insight. That day should not come on us unexpectedly if we're watching. And this is a key point. They try to say that the doctrine of imminency is he could come anytime. No, the doctrine of imminency is that we should watch. Because when he comes, we don't want to be found sleeping. We want to know that we've watched and seen things taking place one by one. And we can say, come Lord, should be any time now. The two witnesses have just died and been raptured. Do you know what I'm saying? Something about the seventh trumpet, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of God's wrath. John and I read them together. The first bowl of God's wrath with the first trumpet, the second bowl of God's wrath with the second trumpet. Guess what? They line up. They line up. I'm going to do a sermon on them. I'm going to show you how clearly they line up. Clearly line up. And at the, at, at the seventh bowl of God's wrath and the seventh trumpet, the same result. The kingdom of the Lord will come the kingdom of his Christ and of his God and the end of all things. They're the same. They work the same. And when you see that, the book of Revelation just about unfolds before your eyes. It's amazing. Johnny knows what I'm talking about because he's had the revelation and we've seen it. And it's an incredible study. But just do that when you get a chance. Read uh, the first trumpet and read the first bowl of God's wrath. They sound, those two actually don't sound exactly, was it that one or the second trumpet? But the result, you could think if that happened, the result would be that one. And, And then the others actually say very similar things, nearly the same in some cases, right through to the last one. So do that as a study. You'll be quite fascinated with what you discover. Now, there are other scriptures 2 Thessalonians we've read. There's also 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. I'll just give you a briefing. It basically tells you that at the last trumpet, the, the rapture is going to occur. And what these pre-tribbers say is, oh, that trumpet is not the same trumpet as the trumpet blown in the book of Revelation. And I'm thinking, well, which trumpet is it then? <laughs> that's the last trumpet. And the seventh trumpet says that's the end of the world and, and the Lord of Christ coming to reign. So what are they talking about? Because the result of the seventh trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52 is the coming of the Lord and the rapture. And the result of the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation is, guess what? The coming of the Lord and the two witnesses were just raptured. I'm wondering whether the church gets raptured at the same time as the two witnesses. I'm actually considering that as a reality and not necessarily a clear doctrinal thing, but I believe that that could be the case. If the two witnesses get taken up, what about the whole church as well? Because the end of all things is coming right then. Do you know what I'm saying? And then there's the Revelation 11.15. This occurs immediately after the rapture. That, those two, 1 Corinthians 15.51 and also Revelation 11.15, line up. 1 Thessalonians 4.16-18 and, and Thessalonians 5.1-4 talks about the imminency. And there's many other scriptures, but check them out. They'll all be up online soon so you can see that screen. I'm sort of speeding to the end of this now. Um, sort of feel like the end of the world. <laughs> Get it out. <laughs> but um, uh, who, who gets a sense of what I'm talking about? Yeah. They can see clearly. Oh, look, I believe the pre-tribulation rapture theory came out of fear. Mm. Out of fear of not wanting to go through tribulation, they created a whole new theology that was not around from the beginning of the church. And it's really come, it's, it's a theology that's held by Christians living in comfortable situations, in security and peace and 
I don't know who goes. So try telling a pre-trib rapture to the Chinese Christians. Absolutely. Well, Corrie Ten Boon said the same thing. She went over to China after there was a great persecution, and the pastors in China came and said to um, Corrie, she said, "Sad." They said to her, "Sadly, we failed. We should have prepared people for tribulation rather than telling them again that they're going to get raptured before it, because they saw a massive falling away in China." during this huge persecution that broke out. Many people gave up the faith during that time. But if they had made the people strong by teaching them that you've got to go through tribulation and hold on to the faith, that, that terrible atrocity would never have occurred. The, the tribulation that they suffered would have occurred, but people would have stood firm. I went to churches that talk that... They're all going to be, they're not worried because they're all going to be taken yeah. away. Yeah, we're not worried. Yeah. Really. And guess what sort of goes hand in hand with that teaching? Prosperity teaching. Mm. Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, in the 90s. They, you know, we're all going to be raptured, so don't worry about anything, right. guys. We're going to, if anything bad happens, we're gone. We're out of here. Yeah. And so let's just have kingdom kingdom now. Mm. Let's have let's have a, uh, a lifestyle today that is like the kingdom, that yeah. kingdom of God. You know. Theocracy now. Yeah. Okay. So let's pray, guys. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, sermon. I thank you for giving me the honour of uh, putting this sermon together. And I uh, thank you for everyone's attentiveness for a one-hour sermon. And um, it's getting more like Joe Shimmel. And, uh, Lord, I just thank you for this time. And I pray that the words that I've spoken today will stay in our hearts. And uh, that if we ever have to go through some kind of tribulation, Lord, that we'll be prepared. And that we won't run from it in the sense of give up the faith. But, Lord, that we'll hold firm, even if our life is uh, called to, uh, we're called to give up our life. We will hold on to you and not on to our life. So, Lord, we just thank you uh, that you've uh, given us the scriptures to clearly work through and uh, to uncover deception. And that we'll, uh, Lord, that this sermon will... um, also reach the hearts of many people around the world that have been holding to these deceptive views and uh, it'll be clarified for them as as they go through these scriptures. And I pray that you really do help this message to get out there and that people will have the patience to listen to it and watch it right through, not turn it off after one minute. Uh, So we pray this in your wonderful name. Bless us this week, cover us with your precious blood and give us a wonderful week in your mighty name. Amen. 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 Amen.